just learned some serious hard lessons about how not to run a business. In the first year, we had to we had to sink or the first six months we had to sink money back into the business twice, so we we put it into the red twice. everyone and welcome to RCA's new business culture podcast series. My name is Rob Arnold, founder of RCA. This podcast is all about learning from those in business who have shaped world-class business cultures, how they did it and what they faced along the way in building these great cultures. We look forward to sharing their insights, tips and tricks with you. episode I had a chat with Chris Payne, one of Cape Town's real talents in the restaurant space. Chris shares his uniquely interesting story about starting in odd jobs, working in world-class restaurants abroad and ultimately starting his own collection of restaurants with partner Carl Miller. Let's hear his story. Tell us the, the life and time so far of Chris Payne. Yeah I guess uh, you know um, after, after school you know had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life, none whatsoever. And, um, uh, you know, kind of only knew that I didn't want to go to university. That was, that was kind of the, <clears throat> the, main, the main thing. I could not face a pile of books again for, I don't know, my life at that point and, yeah, for, for, for a long time. That's the only thing I did know. And obviously, you know, my folks were, were you know, they were actually quite quite okay with it. I thought I thought obviously that there was going to be a bit more of a of a push against it, but that you know they were fine. They said you know you need to you need to figure your your life out and you know go and do whatever you you think is right. And so I didn't really do a gap year. I, I kind of I mean I, I was pretty lost. I I looked around Cape Town for kind of casual work and eventually found a job as a kind of a casual temp guy um, for a, a, an events business that did corporate outdoor events so i mean we used to take people clay pigeon shooting quad biking um build structures for them um the main reason the bloke hired me was because i could drive well i told him i could drive i was 18 just turned you know no, not, yeah not even 19 yet um and he i somehow convinced him that that i could drive and he said fine and i said look i'm not you know, fluent driver in Cape Town. I'd actually never driven in Cape Town up until that point. And he said, well, you know, do we do these jobs, you know, in the Winelands and stuff. Are you going to be okay with that? I said, absolutely, not a problem. And rocked up for my first day of work. And he handed me um, a set of keys, no jokes, to a, a Land Rover Defender. It was an old Land Rover Defender. And and then he stuck three other staff members in the back of the car and said, cool, we're going to drive to Zevenbach now. And that was kind of the beginning of that whole process. He found out that I couldn't drive about 100 meters down the road when we were swerving all over the show and it was, it was a bit of a stressful situation, to be honest. But, you know, we, we, we got through it and I ended up working for, um, for this little business for a couple of months, I think it was, and um, it was very seasonal. So kind of decided, you know, pro- probably time to move on, Christopher, and find something a bit more stable. So... I ended up, um, my, my folks' house where I was living at the time was on the market and there was a knock on the door one afternoon and a bloke arrives at the door and um, 
he says, you know, I want to I want to have a look at the house. So I obviously look him up and down. and I'm like, well, you know, have you made an appointment? Who like who are you here to see? No, are your folks here? And I said, well, it depends. You know, who are you? Cut a long story short. I figured this folk is, is OK. Let him in. So I let him in. Um, I showed him around the house, chatted to him for half an hour, 45 minutes. I do love a good chat. So, you know, we, we went around the house and at the end of it, he said, great, I'll buy the house um, for whatever your folks want for it. And um, I'd like to employ you. So I said to him, well, who are you? You know, and he said, well, I'm my name is, you know, X and um, I have a business called HomeNet. HomeNet at the time were a very well established real estate business in the kind of table view area. So cut a long story short, I started as, I didn't know what to even call myself, a real estate skivvy, you know, just a real estate helper. So I did everything from filing to answering phones to um, like admin for the real estate agents. Eventually I joined an agent and we kind of went around and I helped him sell places and I did show houses and, you know, just uh, did all my board exams for real estate. and. I did it for about a year and the humdrum just set in and I got so bored I just wanted to fall off a cliff. It was just, it was just not, you know, yeah. not my calling. Um, in the meantime, I'd done a couple of trips up to, up into kind of Southern Africa, um, overlanding trips. And on the way down from one of those trips, um, stopped at Blokrans bungee jumping and had a jump and really loved it and come back to Cape Town. And then actually an old school friend of mine, um, Mike Titley, got hold of me and said, you know, we should go and do some bungee jumping. I said, that's a fabulous idea. Let's go. Yeah, so off we went back to Blokrans and we did a couple more jumps. And while I was there, a, a guy recognized me and he said, hey, you, you've been here before. And I said, yeah, you know, like once or twice. And, you know, these are my mates and we've come up for the weekend. So he said, you should totally come and work here. And I said, that's a great idea. I'd love to. And that started the, the kind of the next chapter. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of, I worked there for a, for a summer. It was a short three, four month kind of stint. Did loads of bungee jumping, met the most amazing people, worked with amazing people. And um, we were mostly South Africans, but there were a couple of people that were, you know, internationals that came to work there over the season. Um, that was a very interesting um, experience. And it was just a real experience of kind of getting out into the world and, and meeting people. And also how to, like the first real taste of hard graft. Like we used to work, you know, six days a week, eight o'clock, um, eight o'clock in the morning till six in the evening. And it was all physical work. So we were on the bridge, on the edge, connected, um, you know, with the safety straps and stuff. And it was, it was a real eye opener. And, and sometimes I look back at it and kind of wonder how we made it through. But, you know, they've. They've got a very good record at Blokrans. It's an amazing setup. Um, it really is a, a cool experience. Um, towards the end of that whole phase, you know, I think I was kind of in my early 20s and my, my folks were starting to kind of wonder, you know, what is this like going to do? Um, I was starting to wonder what is this like going to do with this life? And um, I did a bit of rope access um, technical work after that as well. I went and did a course on, you know, basically how to hang off the side of a building and traverse from set of ropes to set of ropes. And, you know, I kind of had this idea of working on oil rigs and fixing, fixing stuff, you know, um, you know, whether it was electrical components or mechanical components that were very difficult to access. I would kind of be the guy that would go down. And so I did a, a, a quick course on that, which lasted a couple of weeks and got my certification to do it. But as well, not the kind of fulfillment that I was looking for. 
And then the, the question in the back of my mind about cooking were kind of bubbling the whole time about, you know, maybe you should think about some cooking. And I had a, a, a close mate who had become a chef and who was doing fairly well. And, you know, that's how I reckon about 90% of chefs get hooked into the game. It's like that romantic idea of, you know, following your passion and, you know, really being able to be creative, which is just not the way it really goes, especially in the beginning. So um, I, started, I started cooking school um, uh, where I think it was about 2005. Um, I went to do it, it was a, a college called, um, oh, it's called the Culinary Academy. And it was in Woodstock at the time. Um, and we were a class of about 15 students. And it was a, a two-year course that they condensed into one year. And it was kind of high intensity. And you, you, you went in and, you know, it, it was basically how to get young people into the industry as quickly as possible, you know, with, with as, as good a success rate as, as what, what they could get. So it, it was also a course based on food and wine. So that was quite a nice, um, nice thing. I didn't actually know that I had a, a, quite a big interest in wine as well at the time. You know, obviously in your early 20s, you, um, you follow wine for different reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, so started the, the cooking school and had absolutely no idea what, what I was getting myself into. Um, you know, I was, an, I was, to be honest with you, I was a terrible chef. Um, at, the end of, at the end of my cooking school, we had to do these big exams, you know, practical exams. And then after that, they placed us into different kitchens in, in Cape Town. And I'll never forget it. We, we finished the exams, you know, big relief oof, all over. Um, and it came time for placement. And I still remember thinking to myself, like, you know, yes, like, where are they, they going to put me? You know, I'm not... You know, I, I get the job done, but it's, it's a bit of a grind, you know. It's a bit of a grind to get this, like, to listen properly and to, to do this stuff. And the, the, I got placed at Beethoven Um Now, anybody that's kind of worked in, in the business will know that Beethoven is run, the kitchen is run by a chap named Edgar Usunik. Apologies, Edgar, if I didn't pronounce that properly. But um, he's, a, he's of uh, Austrian, Austrian background, and he runs a very old-school setup. So... It's, it's your typical um, classic kitchen where there's a massive hierarchy and you go in at the bottom. <clears throat> and, you know, the first, I started in the middle of December. And so we walked in, there were three of us, four of us that walked in as training chefs in the middle of December. After the first two weeks, there were two of us left. Um, and it was, it was a serious, seriously steep learning curve. Going into an environment like that, A, you're not mentally prepared for the the intensity of what it's like to work in a professional kitchen and B, you're not physically ready for it either so you're not physically ready for working from eight in the morning until two o'clock in the morning six days a week earning very little money just to put it to put it blankly um, and that does take its toll on you pretty quickly so immediately you know you lose 20 percent of your body weight you um, you, bec- you become very anxious. You become a bit, a bit of a, a you know, a different, different human to what you used to. Um, anyway, you know, we got through it and, and worked there for about two years. And I went in as a trainee chef and worked my way up to a, a, what's known as a demi-chef de party. And then finally a chef de party, which is basically a, a chef that's in charge of a section of a kitchen. So I was in charge of the saucier section. And I worked very closely with Edgar, which was great because I learned... A heap about just sauces, meats, and fish, and 
the real classic way of, of doing things. But what I also inherited from him was quite a, um, an ego-driven, um, very old-school manner in, in management. And later on, kind of came to find how those things would negatively affect me going forward. But at the time, it seemed like that was the way to do things. So, yeah, it was, I was with Edgar for, for about two years, I think just under... And then I got an opportunity um, to work for the Singita Group up in, um, up in the Kruger Park. So, you know, one day I was working with Edgar, the next day I was on a plane, um, you know, flying into Skakuza, and I got off in the Kruger Park, and I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm here for an interview, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. Like, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm classically trained, and I'm sitting in the middle of the bush now, like, this is crazy. And I got to this lodge, and anybody that's ever been to one of the Singita lodges will know that it's like a pearl in the desert. You know, it's just, it's an amazing place. It's, you know, um, what, what Luke and his team have achieved there is, is incredible at all their lodges across, you know, across all of them. It's, it's amazing. And the, the interview process was quite intense. They make you cook a lot of different stuff. And, and cut a long story short, I was hired as a, as a sous chef to run one of their, or not to run, but to help, the, obviously, the head chef run one of their smaller lodges. So um, it was the Sweeney Lodge. It had, I think it was about 12 rooms. So it's very small, very private, um, and very intimate. Um, and it turns out, you know, after I'd left Efeg and moved up there and I'd worked up at Sweeney Kitchen for, for about a year, it turned out that, that I wasn't actually that good at the whole intimate dining um, small kitchen environment. Like, it's very personal. It's very, uh, the politics are quite, you know, they're quite tied up in those small environments. So um, I asked if I could move up to La Bombo, which was the, the, bigger, the bigger lodge. It had about 30 rooms. It had a bigger brigade. <clears throat> and that was an amazing experience because I got to work with chefs from all over the world. I mean, we had guys that came in from London. We worked with a chef from France. There was a guy from Australia that came through. So that was kind of the first taste of, you know, of the, the much bigger international picture of, of cooking, per se. Um, and obviously, I met a, a lot of great chefs, you know, working there. Singita's got a really good pool in terms of what, what kind of chefs they can, can get into, into those places. So anyway, that was, you know, that was a, a, a massive learning curve. And we cooked, you know, we cooked dinners in the bush and breakfast down at the river with the hippos running around and elephants. And it's no, it's no lies. It's not an exaggeration. There's a lot, they had a lot of wildlife in that part of the world. <laughs> and um, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, so after Singita, that was about three years of, of living and, and, you know, doing that whole thing. Um, it, the, the mission, um, my, my then girlfriend and I, who had moved up to um, work, at, work at Singita with me, um, Kate Payne, had, we decided that Australia was where we wanted to go. You know? um, we wanted to go and work in Australia and get experience. And I had this obsession to start again in, in my, my cooking adventure. Like I, I figured that I'd progressed a little bit too quickly and that I, I had missed a large chunk of what it took to be somebody that would be considered to be a proper chef and not um, you know somebody that had gone from a, a chef to party to a sous chef kind of overnight and I wanted to make sure that the base that I was building onto was was solid well that's kind of what I'd convinced myself of at the time um, and to, to cut a, a massive story in half um, we made our way over to Australia 
um, I can openly say that if it wasn't for, for my now wife, we would not have made it there. Um, it's a very, very difficult place to get into. Um, it requires, you know, form after form after Australian dollar after rands to, to just get yourself there. Um, and we, we eventually got there and that, that's what started the, the Lake House journey. So the Lake House is, is a restaurant hotel in, in Australia and it's actually the most hatted, so they have a hat system in Australia whereby it's not Michelin stars that work on hats. And we, we joined the team there, I think it was end of 2009, beginning of 2010, something like that. Um, you know, Kate worked in the front of house, um, in the hotel side of things, and a bit in the restaurant. And then I, um, I joined the kitchen as the demi-chef to party again, so right at the bottom. And that was a massive shock to the system. I just realized how far behind I was in terms of the basic skills that were needed to make it in that environment. The environment was so fast-paced. People were running circles around me, you know, right from the get-go, and it was sobering. It was very sobering to actually be immersed into that environment and realize that you've actually been wasting your time. You know, you've been wasting your time, and I thought at the time I'd been working so hard, but I'd actually been cruising, you know? And that's what became evident, obviously, with, with that first, those first couple of months at Lake House. But Lake House was also this, this journey of realizing that kitchens didn't have to be run with a, with a, metal, a metal rod. You could actually run kitchens um, systematically, and you could run them with a basic, very good basic level of respect without killing people. You know, with, without, um, you know, the verbal abuse and the physical abuse that, that the things that had happened before. Um, so that was very interesting. And I'd only really come to realize it later on in the, in the story of, you know, of this whole thing. Um, but, and I mean, we were just cooking an unbelievable amount of food there. It still boggles my mind to this day how we did it. But, and the team that we had, we were people from... You know, we had South Africans, we had a handful of South Africans, we had people from Japan, China, there was Koreans, there were New Zealanders, there were uh, Colombians, there were guys from the UK, we had a Namibian, there were people, we were literally a melting pot, but how to get that melting pot to work together and, and how to get them to focus on, on that objective that we had, that was the, the secret of Lake House's success. And, and I think a lot of it had to do with um, with Dave Green, our head chef at the time, and with Ella Wolf Tusker, who is the owner of Lake House, um, and she's quite a quite a force in Australia in the the cooking scene in Australia and the kind of the restaurant scene there. Um, so yeah, that that was that was very interesting. Anyway, towards the end of of the Lake House uh, thing, I'd eventually worked my way up to um, a senior sous chef position. Um, so I was running the the establishment, you know, um, with another sous chef of mine. Um, you know, we were, he was actually also a South African guy called Sparky Vessels, absolute lovely bloke. And um, um, him and I were working closely together, but in, in the kind of the last, the last quarter of, of Lake House, I started, we started to think about how we were going to come back to South Africa and what we were going to do. We, we always knew, you know, my, she was still then girlfriend at the time, we, we knew we wanted to come back. And we knew we wanted to be part of something bigger here, but what it was going to be, how it was going to be, was just, you know, we didn't know. So I started, I jumped onto Facebook and I looked up an old school friend of mine, Carl Miller, because I knew that he was in the restaurant business here. 
um, he was helping his mom at the time um, run a restaurant in Rosebank. So I thought, well, let me flick him a message and see what he's up to, you know. So I sent him, sent him a message and, you know, he replies, uh, you know, efficient as he is, and he replies and he says, you know, yeah, you know, it'd be so cool if you came back. I've got all these ideas, you know. And I, I hadn't spoken to Carl at the time in, I mean, it was 10 years. I don't think we'd spoken. We'd, we'd knew each other from, from school, but... Um, and, you know, he says, what do you think about food trucks? And I just immediately replied to him and I said, absolutely nothing. Right, right now as I stand, I know absolutely nothing about them. I don't want to know anything about them. That just sounds weird. Okay, why would you build a kitchen on, on a chassis? It just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, Carl being Carl persevered and, and said, you know, just have a look at these links, have a look at these photographs. This is kind of what's happening at the moment in Cape Town. Let me know what you think. Anyway, so he planted the seed and we messaged each other a couple of times. And when, when we left Lake House, um, Kate and I did a, um, she was then my fiance. I'd proposed, taken, taken the leap. And um, we did a, a backpacking trip through Southeast Asia. So we, we basically, you know, two backpacks, ticket into Bangkok and then spent two months traveling through Thailand, um, Laos, Vietnam and Cambodia. And that was epic i mean it was just epic we, we had no plans we had no travel route like schedule nothing so we did we ate and drank ourselves through that part of the world it, like it was incredible and um after that whole trip we ended up back in 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 south africa and i had absolutely no idea what i was going to do kate then started to work for uh, lobster inc um, who, you know, at the time were basically known for their online training business that they had. And, you know, <clears throat> Farsi got hold of Kate right from, I think, when the plane's rubber hit the, the asphalt. He was standing there with his pink suitcase ready to go. <laughs> and um, Kate started to work, work with the guys there. And, and I kind of fluttered about trying to do a bit of private work. And, you know, this food truck thing, Carl kept messaging and saying, you know, and, and we met once or twice and chatted about certain things. And, you know, I think I mean, even at the time, I think he was like, you know, maybe we should open up a shop. And I was like, you know, I don't think I'm anywhere near doing something like that. I've got no idea of, you know. It was during that process that I realized that when you have worked as a chef for so long, or, or not even that long, but that amount of time, you become a very insular person. You know, you work with a very select group of humans which are on the same wavelength as you. When you're then ripped out of that situation and put into a social environment, you feel completely out of your depth. You struggle, or I struggle, to have conversations with people on a, on a day-to-day basis, you know, just out and about, wherever. Yeah. And self-esteem was nowhere to be found. It was, it was quite a, a sobering um, thing, kind of coming back out of the, out of the professional kitchen into the, the real world, for lack of a better word. Um, and anyway, Farsi was having some troubles at the Roundhouse at the time and said, would I mind to come help out a bit at the Roundhouse and, and, and do some cooking there, etc., and help, help the sous chef run the place? And I said, you know, I'd love to. I'll come and help on a very temp basis, you know, a month here, two weeks there kind of thing. And it kind of snowballed into, you know, would you be interested in running the roundhouse? And I initially said, no, I wouldn't be, you know, it's, I don't know what I want to do with myself. And um, I, I don't think that 
I, I want to do it. And, you know, Farsi is a, he's a, he's a hell of a convincing oak and he, 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 sells, he sells a good sell. And um, eventually I said to them, I'll do it. You know, I will, I will come and take over your kitchen. And, um, you know, a couple of weeks went by and it was my first day on the job. So, you know, put on the chef's whites, packed the, the knife roll and, you know, off I went for my first day at the roundhouse. And I walked in um, and I greeted a bunch of chefs up in the top kitchen and I went downstairs to their kind of uh, rambouillon kitchen which serves, you know, the alfresco stuff down at the bottom. Um, and something just collapsed inside me. I don't know what happened that day. I'm still a little bit confused as to what happened that day. But I right there and then on the spot made the decision that I was not going to accept this um, this job I wasn't going to accept this style of life that I was about to re-enter into and I, I went up to the manager Zaid at the time and, and I said to him I'm really really sorry but I can't take this job and of course the oak went pale you know he, you know you, you're, you've hired a head chef that has come with you know recommendation and all this stuff and he walks out on his first day I mean it was it was a fail of note you know it was it was a low point and you know I rang Farsi straight after that and you know, Farsi handled the news what I thought was fairly well. He was obviously upset. Um, you know, I would have been. Um, but yeah, that was that was that. And drove out of the roundhouse, picked up picked up the phone, and and called Carl and said, right, food truck, we're going to do it. You know, it's happening. And he he was speechless. He was like, you you're joking right now. You just walked out of the roundhouse head chef position to, to open a food truck. Are you serious right now? And I said to him, I you know that that this is happening. So. Anyway, that started the journey of the, the Lotus food truck and, and what it was going to be. And, and, you know, we had no idea. I mean, we scribbled some stuff down before, but we had no idea what we were looking for even, what the vehicle was, what we were going to do, how we were going to do it. So we drove all over the country, literally, looking for a 1984 Bedford Autovilla. That was the vehicle that we chose that was going to be the right vehicle that we were going to restore into a truck, into a food truck. Um, we drove all over the kind of Choda area out near Ribic West up there. There was a vehicle. We drove up to George and then inland from that looking at another vehicle, which wasn't right. We eventually found an old chap in Kempton Park in Johannesburg. You know, a typical old boy had a um, comb in his, in his sock. And he had a, an old camper that he used to use to take his family down to the Trans Sky with on holiday. And it was his pride and joy, and he'd, he'd swapped a bigger motor into it. So, you know, I kind of figured... I have a very basic mechanical knowledge. I figured, you know, that that would be the right thing for us. You know, it's got a bigger motor. It can it can tow the weight that we're going to build into this thing. You know, let's do it. And myself and Carl said, sweet, you know, let's do a deal. And we did a deal with this old chap and he was happy and we were happy. And and then all of a sudden we realized that we were going to have to drive this thing down from Joburg to Cape Town, you know, <laughs> because we didn't have any money to put it on a on a flatbed or anything like that. And so we just we hopped in and. And we drove off. I mean, I don't even think I checked the oil levels in the thing. I just got in and, and we drove it. And, you know, we, we, there's a couple of stories of, of the shenanigans that happened along the way down to, um, down to Cape Town. We'll leave those for another day. Um, and we, we eventually got the truck down to Cape Town. Um, we, we stripped it out. We cleared it ourselves. We just got crowbars. We removed the shower, the toilet, the satellite dish, the bed, 
the kitchen that it had built into it, all the old wood paneling, everything that, that makes up one of those old vehicles. And we took it to a fitter and said, this is what we want it to look like. And, and Carl literally, he's great at this. He took a, took a pencil and he just, you know, sketched out this kitchen as to what he thought, you know, we needed. And we kind of bounced a few ideas around and said to the, the guys, go for it, you know. And they fitted out a, a, what has turned out to be a really hardcore, long-lasting kitchen into, into the, the truck. And we had a, another family friend design a, um, you know, the images for Lotus. And, and then off we went and just learned some serious hard lessons about how not to run a business. In the first year, we had to, we had to sink, or the first six months, we had to sink money back into the business twice. So we, we put it into the red twice. Um, had to float it. And I had no other income at the time. It was the only thing that that I was focusing on. So coming from, you know, that lake house environment, super professional, super high end, to all of a sudden we were parking on the side of the road trying to prep, you know, we used to prep next to the, literally next to the gas bottles at the back of Carl's other restaurant and because there just wasn't any other way of doing it. Um, and slowly but surely Lotus started to, to get traction. We, we did quite a bit of work into the, the wedding market and found a lot of private work like that. Um, and about, Two years into Lotus, the landlord who we'd met um, through the truck where we were storing the food truck down in Salt River, the landlord approached us and said, you know, I've got this new building in Salt River Woodstock area and I'm looking for something like edgy. I'm looking for like young guys like yourself to come in and maybe do like maybe you want to open a Lotus style restaurant or I've also got like a deli space. Um, come and have a look at the building. So, you know, hard hats on, gum boots, and, and off we went to this, this site. There were builders everywhere, you know, smashing things. And I mean, it was just ridiculous at the time. I just thought, like, Kyle, once again, he really has the foresight, you know, to, to see through the rubble into what, what something could be. And, you know, we, we looked at the space and, um, and, you know, we, we'd eventually decided that Lotus wasn't the right thing to, to develop into a brand, into a, a physical space. We wanted to keep it as a truck. But that because the truck turnover was so seasonal, in summer we were pumping with weddings and all that kind of thing. And in winter, it was crickets, you know. And, you know, 2014 was the most stressful financial time I've ever had in my life. It was, it was just horrible. So... We said, you know, going towards the end of 2014, going into 15, let's figure out a business whereby we can get our turnovers to level out. Let's look for something that's not going to put us onto the cover of E-Type magazine, but something that's going to just pay the damn bills, you know, something that's going to be rock solid all year round. So this office park environment was an interesting one, you know, that was, was kind of what got our attention. So that's where the Mill and Press was born. Um, so Millen Press started off in the Masons Press building in Woodstock. Um, and in May 2015, we opened the doors um, just. We built it on, uh, on the smell of an oily rag. And, um, you know, there it was. We did, it, we did most of the fitting ourselves. And, you know, I guess you've got to look back on those things and go, oh, you know, we could have done it so much more different. I think if you look at your first first venture as, as absolutely perfect, then there's something massively wrong or you've, you've got a two million rand debt bill. Um, you know, there's, it's quite, you know, quite obvious. So yeah, that was the, the first Millen Press store. And then um, 
three three years on from that, well, the Woodstock store started off really slowly, and it you know there were a lot of times where we thought, oh, have we made the right decision here? And slowly the area started to regenerate, and more tenants moved into the building, and we got a little bit busier, and and then we started to get like really consistently busy, and then we got busy, and then we got stupid busy, and we were like, whoa, what, whoa, like we we're onto something here. What is it that is making this work? So we obviously started to look at, you know, why the Millen Press was successful in that little pocket where we were. And because it wasn't any area that anybody had really heard of before, it wasn't a popular place to be. It was very back end. Nobody went there, you know, except for the tenants. But, but slowly we started to pull people from around the areas and, and, you know, around and about. And yeah, we ran there for, you know, that's been open since 2015. And then at the end of 20, or kind of the middle of 2018, you could say first quarter of 2018, um, we caught wind of the guys at Black River Park that were looking for us for a different uh, vendor to come into the Black River Park area. And we invited them over for lunch and we met them and said, you know, this is who we are and this is what we do, kind of take it or leave it. It was very straightforward and put a very basic proposal together. And yeah, obviously hit hit the nail on the head and i think they liked the whole owner run setup and you know the fact that we'd be there and not you know pushing buttons from somewhere else um and we signed that lease in the winter of 2018 and that started off a new entire new chapter for for millen press because it's just a completely different environment to what um, Masons was, you know, just totally different beast altogether. Different clientele, much more discerning, um, uh, much more difficult to actually please, and obviously that helped us to grow um, and improve what we already had. Um, yeah, and that's uh, where we basically where we find ourselves today. It was a bit of a long story, but that's uh, that's essentially how. How we got ourselves to, uh, to how we got into the mess we have now. <laughs> Yo, Chris, that's uh, that's pretty remarkable. I think it's it, it sounds like there's so many lessons in that in that journey um, from from day one to where you are now. What I'm really interested in, um, because I think you, as you went along, I think you obviously picked up and met a multitude of different people, including including Kyle, from a business point of view later on. Is there anything that stands out for you? In, in those various uh, sub journeys that was for you the, the biggest failure but at the same time the biggest learning uh, yeah. curve or exercise <coughs> yeah so I think um, you know the you, you hear people talk about it you know that that when you do have uh, have these massive failures that you know you look you look back on them in a year or two's time and you realize that they were the things that changed the course of your business I mean funny how, how it works but it really is how it works it's a it's a hell of a cliche but but that is that is kind of the big the big turning points, you know. And I think it's difficult to to kind of pinpoint one of them. But I think the the failure of what happened at Roundhouse that morning um, for me was a particular particularly uh, a big one, just because I'd never let anyone down like that before. Um, I felt like at the time I'd let myself down as well. I felt like I'd let Kate down, you know, my my. Uh, my wife and you know I turned down a, a hugely important job role at the time but the, the biggest thing was that I felt that I had really really you know kicked dirt into the face of the directors of that restaurant and, and their business um, 
and you know had have spent a long time trying to kind of you know not make amends but you know show the you know the appreciation and stuff like that in a in a non-aggressive kind of way of you know geez I'm I'm sorry that that had to happen but it had to happen you know the so that was that was a um a hectic a hectic one um the the other one which was the first time that I've ever encountered had ever encountered like proper proper failure or um you know is when we were doing our paperwork to get into Australia both myself and my wife had a or, or Kate the girlfriend at the time had had applied to get into the lake house and they actually told me straight up that they didn't want to hire me um it was it was my idea to go to Australia it was my dream in the beginning you know Kate obviously had her own goals that she wanted to go for but it it you know I felt like it was it was my um you know main I was the main reason why we were we were going to do this thing you know and they turned around and said they didn't want me they wanted Kate you know um and that was it was a pretty pretty bitter pull at the time and you know Kate just said you know just don't worry about it we we're going to push ahead with it and she's going to make sure that she gets there and once she's there then you know we'll get the the paperwork sorted out for me to come over so there was about a 3 month gap between her going and then eventually me coming over and when i arrived there um they still didn't want to hire me um i literally i remember going into an interview with with them and the just getting an absolute grilling from the owner who basically just said you've been wasting your time for your whole working life um and just going like oh, i mean are you joking you know i've worked so hard and she was like no you haven't you don't know what hard work is yet and thinking you know like have i failed at this and then once i started i realized yeah I, there there was a a huge part of my my training that that had been missing that was that was also a, a super difficult thing to to get over you know you you literally got to put your ego away into a box and just shut up and work like that was the moral of the story you know shut up and work and um yeah i think the the other the other failure you know which <laughs> carl always laughs about it and you know is is when lotus went bust twice you know <laughs> here we were first business and it just it just sank i mean we just took the wrong risks we we went for work that had no security but people promised us the world and we like you know greedy little idiots we followed you know followed the line and and got burnt a few times and yeah uh, first first six months we had to cough up twice and pull money from places where i don't even remember where it came from um but yeah the we you know got to got to buy the stock again you got to put in money for packaging and staff and you know all that kind of stuff but all three of those examples have all been massive points of change because you know the lotus thing was okay clap your hands next to your head boys because you're being really stupid here you need to rethink how you approach the market and what the market actually wants market doesn't want you to go and stand at a music festival and sell food to people who have overindulged you know the market needs needs a premium package which in our case was what we were doing um into the private sector of the catering world you know so it's the weddings it's the 50ths it's the corporate events it's it's all that kind of stuff and I have another mate who owns a business in Ashford who told me those things back then he said listen you're barking up the wrong tree you're going to need to be over there and 
you know, you, you, you're proud in the beginning, you know, you're proud and you're stubborn and you, you tell people what you think they need to hear um, instead of actually listening. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's it. Yeah, what's fascinating about that, um, about those examples as well as if, if I think back to your days at HomeNet um, yeah. to where you are now, um, that kind of growth would never happen unless you were put in those types of positions where change was the only way way it's, forward um, so yeah. you know you can it's tough at the time but you look back in hindsight and you wouldn't want it any other way yeah because i think that's what really pushes you into those really steep growth curves um what's really interesting i think for a lot of us to learn and understand in our own rights is there's a working environment that suits and works for us as individuals and there's ones which which don't work and i think that's the basis of of this podcast series is, is all about business culture yeah you you mentioned earlier that you've worked under a number of different leaders and managers um and rightfully so some worked and some were better than others what what type of environment are you now trying to create in your in your businesses in your kitchens etc yeah in terms of what you learned and therefore taking forward you know i think it it what it what it really boils down to is you know kitchens are so kitchens and restaurants they really do have this ability to attract people from all over the world, you know, and some kitchens and, and restaurants are more international than other ones, but you really have to look at where you are in the world and, and who you're working with, slash who are you employing in our, in our case. You know, now that we, we're employing, you know, we're about 23 altogether, next year it will be, you know, over 30 to 35, and we, we kind of look at, you know, who we're employing, how are we going to get the best out of the people that we have? Um, you know, we're, we're not employing people that have business science, you know. Um, so we, we're employing people with a very basic skill level. Now we have to change our mindsets and go, how are we going to get the best and how are we going to inspire what we're working with on a, on a day-to-day basis? And that, that is a very, very tricky art form. I mean, it, it really is. It, I think that people respond really well in our environments to knowing that we actually do care what goes on on a day-to-day basis, you know. Um, we are in our restaurants every day um, from 7 in the morning until 4 o'clock when the doors close between the 2 to 3 to well, almost 3 and a half shops. Um, you know, but what we try and instill in... In our, in our team is a basic principle of loyalty. You know, you, in, in all the places that I've worked, I feel that for me to grow within that business, I need to have shown a serious dose of loyalty to the place that I'm working at. And South Africa, in terms of, you know, where the economy is at the moment, people need also to realize that we have, we're under pressure, you know? Um, and loyalty goes so far to keep the team together and to keep everybody on, a, on you know, the same kind of wavelength and just to make everybody feel like they're part of something bigger than just a hamburger that's going to go out to a customer. You know, and, and a lot of the time, that environment and creating that environment has got to come from, from ourselves you know, in, the, in the kind of upper management in terms of the energy that we bring to our guys. You know, if we walk in in the morning and you know it, you know we're down we're down on energy we're down on on everything the team feeds off that off that immediately um restaurants are you put fuel in the tank they'll burn it up 
you know it's a very basic environment um it's it, yeah it's not it's it's that simple so i i work every day on being able to kind of get that energy into the guys you know get them show that i'm involved show that i'm interested in just all the little basics that are that are going on um to to show them that what they're working on is more i'm interested in what they're doing it's more than just you know the pesto that they're making it's this is a this is an all-encompassing business that is serving you know all across the board close to a thousand people a day guys we're involved in something bigger than than just what's going on here but it's very difficult it's very tricky and I mean the world the world over restaurants and staff I think it's a podcast all on its own is what is happening to the restaurant business internationally people don't want to work as hard as they used to you know the 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 kind of news that are coming out of the top kitchens all over the world is that chefs are retreating there aren't as many successful chefs that are willing to do the hours and and all that kind of stuff so it's a it's a tricky one it's a it's a very difficult one yeah i love what you said about um about loyalty it's uh it brings me back to our second episode that we had with um carla where she she actually worked for a company for 15 years which in today's times you yeah. don't find a lot of no. in terms of uh, tenure at a, at a business um, but what I find interesting is what you said also about showing interest in, in what people do and almost being more purpose driven than, than looking at the just the actions that, that make up uh, the restaurant operation um, and a guy by the name of Danny Meyer I'm not sure if you've heard of him but from New York he's he's a massive proponent in terms of right. that whole purpose driven idea of he calls it HQ but you know hospitality quotient and, yeah. and finding people like you alluded to that are are driven by more than just the technical skill it's it's something which is yeah. extends past that and it's almost a mentality to your work absolutely like, and a lot of the time people come into our environments they already have that you know they come in with it and that's the thing is to try and spot that in people is to try and spot that um, that obsession that they have with the craft you know and and that in in whether you're front of house or back of house in a restaurant environment you really do need to have obsession for craft because that is essentially what we are trying to do you know we're crafting something out of out of very basic ingredients or or you know um, drinks or whatever it may be and if there's not that basic kind of you know interest in that you starting you starting 10 10 steps behind sure and um, if, yeah. if we talk about, you know, you kind of, I guess, recruiting on a daily basis, looking out for, for good people to be part of the business. Is there anything specific that you, you look for in that first interview or that first, let's even just call it a conversation yeah. that you have with someone? Is yeah. there something that that box that, that has to be ticked? I think if you'd asked me this question about a year ago, I would have sat here with absolutely no idea at all because, you know, we have only started hiring in larger numbers within the last year or so. Um, but now, you know, from six months ago kind of thing, I think I look for, and, and you know, when I say I, myself, Carl and, and Tess, you know, we, we look for people, firstly, that we admire. You know, people on some form that we think, you know, wow, they've got, they've either got a family situation, which is really tough, they're coming from far away, um, they've really grounded out to get to where they are. You know, there's something there that we're looking for that makes us think, 
wow, like I really admire your force, you know, your, your ability to be able to actually push through a tough time because restaurants are not easy environments to be in. They are hardcore. It doesn't matter if you're working in the McDonald's at the waterfront or at the one and only, or it doesn't matter. They are all hardcore environments. So you want people that know what tough is. You know, you want people um, who can who can really push through those uncomfortable times. Sometimes we get the hiring right, sometimes we don't. You know, that is a massive part of what we're learning at the moment is is how to spot that 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 admiration. Um, you know, experience isn't isn't everything. You can teach somebody. You, you can't teach somebody that's got a lot of experience. Very difficult to teach because they 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 know it all. You know, they they've been around the block. Don't tell me what to do. And um, you need those people that are open-minded, that don't mind change, and that are that are willing to to really grind it out because that's what we do every day. And with that in mind, I think a, a big challenge that we find our clients face, not just in a, in a kitchen environment, but in business in general, is. You know, some people in a, rec- in a recruitment uh, or in an interview rather can speak a very good game. They can, they can yeah. bring the best version of themselves and, you know, in that interview they sound fantastic. Down the line, uh, when they, you know, actually in the working environment, sometimes you don't see the same level of person. That's it. Have you found that oh, ever heaps. in your working space? Oh, heaps of it, heaps and of it, yeah. And I would love to say absolutely not, Rob. We get it 100% right all the time. Oh, we've had the wool pulled over our eyes countless times you know and um it's 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 lessons and you got to take them on board and and try and try and work on them but the the art of recruiting um you know as a as a trained chef it's not something that anybody ever taught me how to do so unfortunately you're in the in the deep end here brother you gotta you gotta figure it out and and it is uh, yeah it's a it's a new set of set of rules that we have been figuring out over the last year we've come a hell of a long way in terms of of how we approach that um, but yes we've had we've had people that have um you know posed the sheep and and ended up eating the flock it's uh it's quite a, it's been insane so do you agree or disagree that the more the front line the position is in other words the more entry level the position is we find that the recruitment process becomes more and more dilute. In other words, they don't see it as, as important. So for example, for a waiter, someone won't spend as much time recruiting the waiter as they would um, someone quite high up in a, in a management position, for argument's sake. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, that person's the front or the face of that business. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite crazy. <clears throat> Absolutely, you know, you yeah, and it's it's once again, it's just one of the one of the hard lessons that that we learn at the moment, you know, um, waiter scullery section in a kitchen, you know, oh, just hire anyone, put them there. Worst mistake you can make. Absolutely, the worst rookie error you may as well jump off a building. It is, it is a useless mistake because that's the route. That's where the people come in. The first person that a customer sees is the waiter or waitress. You know, the first smile that they see through the door is going to be that person. So you miss hire there, you've, you've just tripped over the first hurdle. Same in the kitchen. Where do the plates get cleaned? If I give a customer a dirty plate because the scullery is not up to standard, they're not able to process what's going on, same problem. You put a fl- plate of food down in, somebody, in front of someone and it's got a dirty patch underneath. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a huge, a huge error. And it's also mistakes that we've made and, and yeah, trying to learn how not to make those mistakes again. <laughs> yeah, sometimes easier said than done, I yeah. suppose. 
Getting to, to yourself and your business partner, Kyle, mm. um, you guys have walked a decent road already together uh, from that Facebook message. Yeah, um, it starts before the Facebook before message. Before the Facebook actually. message. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what makes you guys as a partnership work? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think for us, we're just totally different people. You know, um, Kyle has a business science background, uh, you know, just from a skill set point of view. Um, he, you know, he has a business science background, accounting background. Um, you know, he's, he's great with the numbers. He's great with our bookkeeping. He's great with our payroll. You know, all that stuff that really lays the foundation and the framework for a, for a decent business to, to operate. Mm-hmm. Um, he deals with all our, you know, all the, the invoicing and the financials and that kind of stuff. Um, whereas I'm a little bit more practical in my approach, you know, uh, much more practical. Um, you know, I deal with the, the operational bits and pieces, um, you know, from making sure that the food truck is serviced and looked after all the, the bits that go wrong on that, which are plenty, um, to making sure that all the equipment in the restaurants are running and as they should be, um, because I, it's one of my pet hates is having equipment that's faulty or staff working on equipment that isn't 100% functioning or working as it should. A, because I think it just degrades the person that's using it. Um, I like them to feel like they're driving a Ferrari every day. You know, if, you, if you're on the coffee machine, I need it to be shining and it needs to be working at the proper pressures with the right dosage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, so he, he's very much the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the back office side of things and I'm, I'm the operational side. Um, but as I said, you know, we, we're totally different, different people. We've got totally different mindsets in terms of, of how we want to do things. But at the same time, he's very compromising on, on what he puts forward, you know, and, and I like to believe that I'm the same. And I think that's what, what makes the decision making um, really good at the end of the day is that you can spit two completely things out there and, and they, can, they can form and work, you know. And I mean, literally this morning we had a proper powwow about, about a couple of things and it's about being able to put your theories out there and your, your suggestions and your partner being able to take it on board and say, yes, this will work, I like that, but what about this and, and vice versa, you know. And, and that's what makes our, our setup work. Yeah, it's, it's actually very interesting you mentioned that because uh, we've done a lot of research on this guy called Ray Dalio who um, is a hedge fund manager of some massive company in the, in the States. But more importantly, what, what they created in their business was an, uh, a concept called an idea meritocracy where the best idea always wins regardless of who brings it up. Right. Um, and I think what you just said about having the, the ability to to... Uh, bring across a difficult topic yeah um, have a go at it not I suppose it's never not personal completely but you know let the best idea win rather than it absolutely. be an attack on the ego oh, absolutely yeah. is, if, uh, if you if you know and, and, and you will know that your your idea is not the best um, you, you got to back off it you know and and, and go with uh, with the the opposite story because you know it's good for the business at the end of the day and that's the thing these you know like Somebody said it to me the other day, like, you know, owning a business is like riding a line, you know. At first, it's a little cub, and you're riding along, and you think, oh, this is fun, you know. And then all of a sudden, you turn around a year down the line, and it's a, down the line, and it's a massive beast that's trying to eat you. Um, and and that's, um, that's kind of how, how it goes. And you've got to make sure the beast doesn't eat you, so make the right decisions, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we, we've discussed that uh, your, your partnership with your, your partner works for the most part, but... 
I guess there's always people who come into the business also that teach us for the wrong reasons, um, perhaps who the right people and who the wrong people are. Was there ever anyone that came into your guys' business that didn't work out and that you learned something from? Has there any, been, ever anyone has come in and you know things didn't work out and it was a lesson in itself? Oh, I think you know that kind of border, borders on the of the story of you know not hiring properly. Um, you know, Carl and I, we've never really allowed you know anyone into the partnership of our business. Um, you know, Carl's wife Tess now helps us, or she works works in the business every day. Um, she's been instrumental in you know our our advancement going you know going along. Um, but I think we've certainly had people that have come into the business that have damaged our business. Um, you know, there have been people that have come in which we have learned a heap of stuff from that have turned out to be the completely the wrong people for our business. Um, you know, it's, it's strange. You, you wouldn't think so. And it's always in hindsight, you look back and go, oh, yes, like they taught us how to do that. And we never... At the time, we kind of thought, well, that's a bit of a stupid idea, just because we thought that the, peop- the person who was, you know, bringing it forward wasn't quite up to scratch. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, there are people. There have been people that have come in. Um, I think one of the one of the clear examples was was a, a lady that came to join us. I think it was like 2015. I mean, when I say we opened our first restaurant on the smell of an oily rag, like, I mean, we were down on Woodstock Main Road looking for wood. It was that kind of level, you know, we were looking for wood to build shelves and, and all that kind of stuff. And it was really, really basic. But anyway, a couple of, couple of months on the line, this woman came into the business and, and said to us, you know, where do you guys keep your cash? And we said, well, oh, we just take it home, you know. And she, she said, well, are you joking? I said, oh, what's the problem? You know, I own the business. At the end of that, take my cash home. Um, and she instilled this, this whole, um, you know, safe deposit box situation with within our business which um you know cut a long story short we we don't use anymore because we we're moving away from cash altogether but that's an, another another topic but um you know at the time for the for the next for the next two years we would use this system but she actually ended up working for us for about a year i think it was and then went on her way she was completely the wrong person for us but that was just one of uh, you know the small examples of of somebody putting something really important in place that could have saved a lot of dramas had we been robbed had we been broken into had we been you know um pulled over on the side of the road on the way home or or, or whatever it yeah mm. so definitely mm. so considering the fact that you uh leading a culture yourself with with carl um how would you describe your your style when it comes to uh, the environment that you've created but just on day-to-day management stuff as well how, how would you describe that yeah you know I think one of the things was like I was never educated on how to manage you know management for me was born out of a kitchen you know and one of the things that has worked for me well there are two things mainly the one is work harder than everything everyone else but I think that is a very old school mindset and I think it's got certain amount of legs but you know now you know, the guys that are just much better than me in, in even within my business. They're much better than me. They're much faster than me. But one of the things that, that I bring is a an energetic, positive mindset every day. Come hell or high water, it doesn't matter what's going on. You know, that has to be, I cannot be a dark cloud. And, and that is one of the things that I use very basically on a day-to-day level is I come in and I come in hot, you know. 
sounds uh, sounds a bit uh, bit cliche, but that is that is just how how we do it. No, I think um, that's you, you can't put a price on that. I think yeah. the the psychology of the people is the starting point, and it's everything. So the more positive influence they can have, the better. Yeah. So I've got a question for you, which is more related to to customers than people working in. Yes, I suppose in in food and beverage yeah. or, or in any culture rather, but. You know, customers often are going into restaurants and they're expecting good service, but they don't often do a lot to ensure good service. Mm. As someone from the other side, <laughs> someone who sits behind do the cup. Do you want me to give you a sugar-coated version here or a real, <laughs> real account? And the reason why I wanted to ask this question is because I think some people are good at ensuring they get good service because I think it comes from both sides. And others actually do a great job of making sure they get bad service. Yeah. Yeah. What tips or advice would you give to a customer or a guest going into a restaurant per se to say this is how you can make sure you're going to get the best service. It's a it's a, it's a heck of a question, eh? I think you I think it's an interesting one. Definitely, you know, there's this whole thing of you know the customer's always right. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an argument over a, over a couple of beers, I guess. But um, you know, I think the the first thing that that I would say about that is leave your baggage at the door. You know, leave your baggage at the door as a customer and come in smiling. Come in and smile at the staff member. You know, people are basic. They respond to positivity. Um, you know, restaurants are these, these meeting points. They really are. You see people come together at restaurants as, as, you know, they have a coffee, they have something to eat. And with them, they bring their issues. They bring their insecurities. They bring their negativity. They bring their sometimes their positivity. They bring their open or closed-mindedness. They bring the fight that they had with their husband in the morning or wife that they had that morning before coming into work. Um, you know, so it, it really would help if we could start with a, with a blank canvas, you know, when it came to a customer. So, you know, I sometimes, you know, when, you know, my wife and I don't go out that much anymore because we have, we have little, little one now and little ones soon. And um, I like to, when I go out, not choose what I want to eat. I like to let the establishment choose. I say, I'm hungry. I feel like, you know, feed me. Go for it. I really don't care what you give me. Go for it. And the amazing response that you get from that is that they immediately identify with you as a customer going, they're really excited to be here because they're just letting us choose what we want to feed him. All of a sudden, you've made a direct connection with the chef in the kitchen and the team because the whole team hears that, uh, guys, new order. We've got one customer who just wants to be fed and everyone's ears perk up. We used to do it at Lake House. We loved it. You know, so I like to do that when I go out and when we go and to say, just go to town. You know, if you want to give me that poached salmon or that chicken liver, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm happy. Um, awesome. and, and I think that there's a huge amount of positivity. I'm not saying everybody go into the restaurant and confuse the, the heck out of the kitchen, but, you know, it, it, I would say start off with a blank canvas. Try not to bring your, your stuff into the restaurant and, and affect people because it's very difficult for staff to try and dig you out of your hole, you know. We can, we're going to try. We are going to try. But it's very difficult to achieve that depending on how far down you are. You know, sometimes it's impossible to bring somebody out of the space that they're in. No matter how good the coffee is, no matter how good the food is, no matter how good the service is, they're just never going to come out of it. And they're probably still going to give you a hard time. Yeah. But we're certainly going to try. Yeah. Oh, that's a great answer. Um, so uh, continuing on that trend when it comes to, to Chris Payne, the, the customer rather, if you had to go to one restaurant for the rest of your life, 
would you be able to decide on one? Hmm. Well, if we had to take Cape Town, right? We live in Cape Town, so let's use Cape Town as a thing. As I said, you know, I don't, at the moment, just at the moment, I don't eat out as much as I should. You know, take me in the business, you should eat out a lot and really, you know, see what's out there. But I've always had a serious soft spot for two places in Cape Town. The one is the South China Dim Sum Bar on Long Street. Um, I think it was because it was one of the first restaurants that, that Kate and I started to go to when we'd come back from Melbourne. So we'd been living just outside Melbourne. We'd eat at a lot of places that had a similar kind of style where, you know, you went in for some quick dim sum and, and it was handmade. So nothing was bought. It was handmade, super delicious. Um, and there was also a sense of like, there was just no sugar coating going on. You know, I'm going to give you your dim sum on a biodegradable plate with some um, black vinegar splash on it. If you don't like it, you can go down and have dinner at, I don't know what is down there in our steers or something, and go, go and like, like, this is what we do, and we stick to it. And it's, it's such a basic, it's such a basic concept done really well and really artisanally that I love going there. But the other place, for a number of reasons, if I probably you know, would be the Potluck Club in, uh, in the Old Biscuit Mill. I think it, the, the reason I, I mean, apart from the food itself, the, the, apart from the fact that they've got a, a charcoal grill in the kitchen, which I think adds an authenticity to what they do here in Cape Town, you know, in South Africa, and um, the flavors that they, the combinations are, are stark and delicious, and the food is very texturally focused as well. And that's sometimes the thing that so many people get wrong is they lose sight of texture and how to actually make things crunch and pop and you know do do all that kind of thing. Um, but I think the design of the restaurant, you know, the space that it is, and the way that you enter into the restaurant, and the fact that when you're sitting in the restaurant, you look down to the ocean side of the restaurant and you see the train tracks and the real kind of like the grunge of what South Africa is about, you know? And then you look up to the mountain and you see, you know, you're looking up to gardens and Tambours Kloof and all of those areas and you see the other side of what South Africa and Cape Town is like. And it's like this, it's like this hot knife that's just sliced through the center of our city. And it's just sitting there showing you just what this place is all about. Mm. And I just dig that environment. And I, and I love the way that they, they, their service is so, it's so on point yet you never know it's there, you know, and they've nailed it. And I haven't been there for a while now, but, um, you know, we, we frequented it a lot when we, when we came back from, from overseas and we, we had lots of Aussie dollars to spend. And, you know, um, it, it was, it, it still is one of my favorite places to go. And, and you know, the, the, what the team does up there and they change their menu a lot. You know, and that's also just hats off to, the, to those guys for, and girls for doing that because it's difficult, you know, to, to change so often and be very creative like that. And it's, a, it's an awesome place and it's an awesome design. I just love everything about it. Yeah, it's, it's good. Sounds like you enjoy being elevated, whether it's blow crants or pot like Apparently, there's been a. As long as there's elevation at play, you, uh, you seem to be at home. So apparently, that's, apparently, that's true. Exactly yeah. opposite to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, when Chris is not. Uh, in a kitchen or not making delicious food um, what what keeps you going what what you what are you passionate about um, I'm a dad so my daughter's turning three on Saturday and we've got a, a baby coming in uh, at the end of this month so yeah that that first and foremost you know is a, is, is an awesome an awesome journey um, as you know um, 
I mean, it just ticks all the boxes in terms of what life is all about, in, in my opinion. You know, it's hard, but, but it really is the most fulfilling thing I think you can do as a person. It really is incredible. Um, you know, apart from, from the family life, you know, everyone needs a hobby, you know. You, you need a hobby. You need, to, uh, you need to keep things exciting. And the automobile has become a hobby of mine. Um, I'm sure the listeners already started picking up the way you were speaking about that Lotus food truck. So. Yeah, look, you know, we've got a classic in, in our midst already, being the Lotus food truck, and uh, a couple of Land Rovers in the family and a, and a few other things. But yeah, cars have always been a, a, a passion of mine. Um, my, my dad got me into it when I was, um, when I was very young. You know, we, we grew up, I grew up on a citrus farm about two hours outside of Cape Town. Um, and he was building and restoring cars from when we were lighties, whether it was an AC Cobra or Ford Cortinas or Buicks or, you know, whatever. There was always some sort of car that was, you know, parked on, you know, under the, under the lawn and uh, on the lawn. And, you know, he was working on different stuff. And, and that's kind of, you know, transcended into a, into a hobby of mine and a passion of mine. And um, I, I just love everything. There. Yeah, I guess you could say a bit of a petrol head and, um, my old man and I are always, you know, uh, talking about the next project and what it is that we're going to do. And, in, you know, we, we've got Land Rovers, as, as I think I, I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, I drive an old um, 97 Land Rover Defender. Um, it's not my daily driver anymore. I used to. I drove it for about 10 years. I love her. Um, and, you know, he, my, my dad's got an old Defender as well, so we've done a lot of overlanding together. Um, so overlanding, camping, that kind of stuff is, you know, that's, that's the prize. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to do some of it with, with my family now, which has been, been awesome. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, at the moment, you know, building a business and building a brand has become very time consuming. It's become, you know, the, there's been a lot of sacrifice that's gone into creating the Millen Press and getting to where it is now. And, um, and also, you know, Lotus has, um, has also been a huge growth curve, you know, from 2013. So th there's, yeah, the sacrifices have been big. Um, you know, obviously building businesses, money doesn't just fall out of the sky. So there's all those kind of sacrifices that, that come into play as well. Um, but yeah, I'll answer your question, family and cars. Pretty good answer. Yeah. I'm sure the Bugatti is uh, not far away. We'll see. A couple more Mullen presses and uh, mm. there you go. To start ending off with, um, if you could get your staff to be thinking one thing without fail every single day, just one thing, what would that one thing be? Oh, Robert, these questions. Um, look, you know, I think, I think it's so difficult to, to, to say, you know, motivation, for example, or, you know, energy or... Um, you know the, the loyalty thing I spoke of but you know I think if you look at if you look at our economy where we are and you know as a business owner I believe that you need to be you have to have your head not in the clouds but you need to be above water in terms of how you look at our economy and how you look at our country if you load yourself up with all the negativity in the media you can't swim you know it gets too heavy you literally can't swim because it's one strike after the other and you know, there's a lot of negative stuff that's going on, so you really have to keep your head above water. But what I, what I wish that, apart from the motivation and all, all those, you know, everyday things that you want your staff to be thinking about, I want my staff to think gratitude. You know, gratitude, not, for, not towards me as a business owner, not towards the person that, that employs them, but gratitude 
for themselves, the fact that they, they, they get up every morning at five o'clock, some of them hop at four, leave, get onto dodgy public transport, make it to work on time, grind it out for the day, get back onto dodgy transport to their families, you know, in the evening and spend maybe, you know, an hour with their kids before they go to sleep, that they feel gratitude towards themselves that they can hold down that job, you know, because there's so many people in this country that just don't have the discipline to be able to do it, you know, and I I really do wish that, that in the background as to all the things that they were thinking about that I demand from them every day, that they had that sense of gratitude for themselves and also pride for themselves that they're able to do those things you know, on a regular basis in this climate that we're in, which is a serious washing machine with, with sharks floating around in it. Um, so yeah, it, it would, I would say you know, in a nutshell, just gratitude for, you know, towards themselves for doing it. Yeah, I think that's a great answer because that really opens one up to, to receive more. So I think that's, that's really great that if the guys can really think about that first and foremost, it's mm-hmm. a great platform. How can the public uh, find out more about Millen Press and, and Lotus? Um, social media is you know, the, the easiest way to, to kind of check up on, on what we do. Um, we unfortunately don't update our social media as, as much as we should. We're very naughty when it comes to uh, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, Facebook and, and Instagram is the easiest way um, you know, to, to get hold of us. Um, on Facebook, it's you know, Mill and Press BRP for the Black River Park store um, or uh, Mill and Press Woodstock um, for obviously the Woodstock store and then um, Instagram uh, Mill and Press. Um, and people can you know, check us out through there and see what we're up to and, um, and updates and things like that. Um, or the best is to, to come in, in in the flesh, you know, pop into the store and come and say, how's it, and see what we do. And, you know, we, we've obviously got the two stores at the moment. There's, a, there's another project that's simmering for, um, for early 2020. Um, we're just busy ironing out a couple of kinks and uh, sorting out what needs to be done and how, etc. But yes, hopefully first quarter of 2020, there's a, there's a Millimpress uh, 3.0, which is going to pop up and, and uh, yeah, you know, bring, bringing the, the quality to the, you know, the, the, corporate, the corporate office spaces. That's what, what we're all about. Chris, yeah, just from our side, thank you so much for your time. I think you as has been evidence in your story, it's, it's been fascinating and I think at a relatively young age, you've experienced a hell of a lot already. Um, but I think your humility and the way that you tackle these challenges is is a huge part of the reason as to why you got to where you have already. I think that's something which we've noticed in all the people that we admire is a common trait. So uh, it's great to, to hear your story, and I think the listeners would, would agree. Um, and we can only wish you absolute best for the rest of the journey i think it's going to be a hell of an interesting one it's it's always going to be an interesting one that's for sure <laughs> but yeah thanks for uh, thanks for allowing me in here and it's been been good to chat that's it for today guys if this episode brought you value please do subscribe to the podcast series and for more information on building your organizational culture visit us at rcaconsulting.biz we'll see you in the next episode